Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Well, hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil, and welcome to this audio podcast. I hope you've hit subscribe here on your favorite podcast platform. Today, we're going to be talking with author Kirby Summers about the secret life of Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell. This case continues to haunt not only the victims, but all of us as we try to wrap our heads around how people can go out groom children, and then sexually abuse them. Let's jump into this episode. Well, hey folks, I'm pausing to share some concerns I have surrounding identity theft and fraud. I've learned a lot from our partner, Ara. They're the pros at protecting people from cyber predators. Ara provides identity theft protection, credit and fraud protection, and online and device security for you and your family. They taught me to think twice before answering those online questionnaires designed to steal our personal information. You know, it must be working because U.S. statistics show that 33% of us have been victimized by identity theft at an annual cost of more than $56 billion each year. Our protection plans come with around-the-clock support, a money-back guarantee, and a million-dollar theft policy. But here's the best part. You can try Aura for free by clicking on this special Profiling Evil link in the description down below. When you do, we get a small commission. But think about it. You insure your car and you insure your house. Don't you think it's time to insure your identity? Now let's get back to today's discussion. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Profiling Evil Podcasts. Glaine Maxwell told a judge a few days ago that she's not willing to discuss a plea negotiation as the court begins her jury selection. Her only comment, I have not committed any crimes. As prosecutors prepare for the trial, which alleges that Maxwell conspired and enticed minors to travel and engage in sex acts, along with other charges, I'll be talking to a survivor of sexual assaults who also has ties to associates of Maxwell and Epstein. My guest is Kirby Summers. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's great to talk to you, Kirby. And because of ongoing threats, we're not going to be showing you on camera. But Kirby, folks, is the author of more than a dozen books. She's an investigative journalist and an advocate for human rights. She writes the weekly Epstein Project newsletter, and she hosts the Epstein Project podcast. So, Kirby, um, <laughs> thanks so much for taking time for uh, joining. But I want to just say, most importantly, you're a survivor of sustained sex trafficking, and, and you've turned that victimization into being a champion for human rights. Thanks so much for being with me. You know, it, it does. I really appreciate the fact that you're taking uh, some time in your show 
episode. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you. And, you know, as, as Glenn uh, prepares for trial, I, I guess the first question I would have for you is what thoughts have you had circling around in your mind, especially with some of the shenanigans that are going on in the trial uh, now as we prepare for jury selection? Uh, the judge basically told her attorney, we're not going to allow uh, the use of the Jeffrey Epstein non-prosecution agreement, which from my perspective, having done so much research on Glenn and Jeffrey Epstein and knowing some of the parties and understanding that this is indeed what Alex Acosta said it was, it is an intelligent uh, operation. Yeah, so what, what, the way that I look at it is that they're not allowing her to um, bring up this defense, which in fact her attorneys have attempted every time they approach the court. Uh, they do ask Judge Allison Nathan, who is presiding over the case, uh, to uh, that she is allowed to go home because Jeffrey Epstein's non-prosecution agreement applies to her. And at every every time they they have brought it up, and they have done so, I, w- I would say over a dozen times at this point, uh, Judge Nathan turns around politely and says no. Um, but now she has made it very clear that she is not allowing even the term to be used in the courtroom. So for me, I look at that and I say that's because they are trying to suppress the fact that this wasn't uh, an intelligence covert trafficking operation that's been ongoing, you know, for, for a decade, frankly, even before Epstein, as I said. That's what I think. Well, what are your thoughts? Well, no, I, I, I think that is really a great uh, starting point. I want to kind of go back and maybe paint a picture of who Ghislaine is. And so I'd like to spend a little time helping our listeners get to know who Ghislaine Maxwell is, and and uh, a little more about what life was like for her growing up. So I want to talk about her upbringing, some of the behavioral characteristics, her formal and her informal education. So can we step back in time to what your research taught you about who she is and why she became the Ghislaine we know today? Absolutely. So it's interesting because when I sat down to write... Um, her her biography, Ghislaine Maxwell, an an unauthorized biography, which, by the way, her sister was the first person to Um, pre-order. My goal was to write one book about her from, you know, the day she was born to present day. When I began to dig, I discovered that there were a lot of uh, things about her life that mainstream media had omitted. And so pretty much that first book, it takes her her before her birth because Robert Maxwell is such a powerful uh, force in her life and he shapes who she becomes today. And then it ends with her connecting with Jeffrey Epstein and then you sort of see the connection to Leslie Wexner, for example. But Robert Maxwell um, had become a spy during World War II. Uh, He came from a very dirt poor family. I, I think a lot of people are aware that he was dirt poor. He he went on later to say things like, we didn't have shoes, whatever shoes we had. Uh, 
the siblings, you know, he, he came from a very large family. Um, one of the siblings died. Uh, they shared one pair of shoes. So his mother, however, um, for in ways that are sort of are echoed with Robert Maxwell and Galen, his mother, despite the fact that she had, I believe it was seven children, I would have to go back in my notes and see, I know two of them died, so it could be that they had nine and, and, and seven survived. Um, she would tell him that he was exceptional, that he would grow up to be uh, someone who would be respected and uh, she was um, a very smart woman for, you know, that time uh, women were not necessarily given the opportunity to go to school. But this was a woman who would uh, walk down the street and if she saw a scrap of newspaper on the street, she would pick it up and she would read it. So she was a, a self-taught uh, person. She was a strong personality. She believed in Zionism. She taught her son that if he wanted to succeed in the world, because at the time, you have to remember, there was a lot of anti-Semitism. She said to him, you, you must uh, carry yourself and comport yourself like an English gentleman. And you must tell no one that you are Jewish. I, it, it's a horrible thing to think about in hindsight that he had to uh, hide who he was, which he did by changing his name several times. Um, so, but in the war, he became a spy, um, and he showed that he was just really brave, um, very strong personality. He was, he had movie star good looks. He's six foot three. He has dark hair. Um, he soaks up information the way his mother used to soak up information. Um, so, for example, during the war, if he met someone who came from a well-bred family, he would befriend the girl and become friendly with the parents and sort of understand and pick up. He had a good ear for languages. So at some point, he boasted that he was fluent in eight or nine languages. He would pick up the dialect. And um, sort of at the end of the war, he connected with Betty Maxwell, who he would marry. And then he would end up having, um, sort of recreating the family that he lost during the Holocaust um, with Betty Maxwell. Delenn is the youngest of the seven children they they had together. Um, she too was someone who was born. I mean, look, she by the time she was born, they owned this fabulous. Um, 53-room mansion uh, called Headington Hill Hall. They had servants. Uh, they had every luxury uh, anyone could possibly want. However, Robert Maxwell, and I'm going to compare him for a minute with, let's say, um, the Kennedy uh, patriarch. If they said he was, he was an ambassador, if you remember, um, he was an ambassador that was sent to France. At the dinner table, for the ambassador's children, the Kennedy clan, who, who became quite close, frankly, with the Maxwell clan, and there's a long history there, he would sit them down, and their conversations would revolve around politics. 
Maxwell, Robert Maxwell, would sit down with his children and pretty much the conversation would be an intelligent conversation, right? It would not be watching television like Americans were accustomed to doing, but he sort of brought his children up in a way, I, I almost want to say, to emulate what he had learned. Um, and so at the age of three, Delenn Maxwell, um, her eldest brother, um, three days before her birth, was in an accident, a tragic accident, which left him in a coma for about seven or eight years. And then he died um, when she was born, her parents were grieving. And this is the last child for them. And their firstborn is suddenly uh, in a hospital and he's in a coma and, and, and they're grieving. At the age of three, Glenn tells her mother, Mommy, I exist. That was very telling for me. It, it showed me um, at three years old for a child to, to turn around and demand attention. It shows that she was born with the same spirit that Robert Maxwell had. Well, I, I think that's really interesting. I, one thing that I thought was interesting is you talked about a time when she was going to receive a beating and kind of her response based on some of the family dynamics. What, what were your thoughts in that regard? Yeah, so Robert Maxwell had a very heavy hand uh, with his children and and uh, but it was at a time you know we have to remember that it was okay somehow it was okay for parents to to spank children for for a very long time that's no longer tolerated but i do have a a, a chapter that a lot of people are interested in and it talks about um galen at the age of nine who knows if she's going to be receiving a beating from her father later in the afternoon. Um, she is laying around uh, by the tennis court, you know, sort of listening to music or listening to something on the radio. And Robert Maxwell, who has an office within this 53-room mansionette, he's got an office for Pergamon Press on the property. He's walking... Uh, toward her um, with Eleanor Berry, who was probably, let's say, 10 years older than Galen at the time. So maybe she was 19 or a little bit older than that. And um, Maxwell becomes a little irate because he had given her a pony for her birthday and she had allowed the pony to wander off and the pony has done, did his business and he was very, very angry with her. And so she knows she's going to get a beating. And, 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 and um, Robert Maxwell storms into his office and Eleanor Berry goes on to chat with nine-year-old Delenn. And, and Delenn is just ho-hum, ho-hum. He's going to hit me. And, 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 and Eleanor Berry says, well, uh, that's really interesting. And then what's going to happen is so... Delenn gets up off the ground and she leads Eleanor into the house and into this room and she shows her a table and the table is there are all kinds of there's like a, a, a brush and a paddle and a whip 
it's just on and on with all sorts of things that she can later choose. Um, he allows her to choose, obviously, what he is going to beat her with. And so Eleanor is asking her, well, what are you going to select? And, and uh, Gillen tells her, you know, you, you know she's going to select the paddle because it doesn't really hurt that much. But her friend, who's a lot older than her and who, in fact, has a crush on Robert Maxwell, says, well, I would select uh, this. And, you know, and, and, and the whole thing was just a very bizarre, bizarre episode, not only because here is an older woman sort of talking to this nine-year-old child about her own sexual fantasies that she has with about her father, but that by this point, it didn't matter to Glenn that she was going to have a beating by her father. And later on, as she grows up, um, it is discovered, uh, and we know it now through the victims of Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell, allegedly, that um, uh, Glenn was into, let's say, that world, that sadomasochistic world, um, that she would treat her sex slaves, and I have to call them that because that's how they refer to themselves um, with cruelty. Um, and this is something else that she, she got from her father. She got the ability to turn on the charm, but to be cruel when needed. And in her case, because she was a, a, a female, she learned early on that she could turn on the charm for men, and, and she was always very cruel to women, um, which she still is. <laughs> You know, she still is. And she's almost 60 at this point. As I think about that side of her life, it makes you uh, go back to the old argument that we talk about in the in the profiling and behavioral arena of nature versus nurture. And clearly these are learned uh, behaviors as a result of her childhood. Let's, let's kind of move a little bit from that. Tell me about her formal education and, and um, what she, what pathway she followed in education. I discovered during my research that she was dyslexic. I don't think many people know this. Um, her father would invite a lot of her classmates when she was a child to the home and have these contests. And in order to boost her spirits, even though she was not a, 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 she could not read because of her, I mean, but they didn't know what was wrong with her uh, because she had this problem. Um, he would always say, oh, well, Glenn won. And, you know, the children would be a little bit astonished because she was really the one who did the poorest. Um, however, he put her into a boarding school at the age of 13. And, um, and, and then she went, she attended four different schools and he did something that a lot of men who have money uh, do, um, for Oxford, he uh, gave them, um, some kind of donation for something. And then through that, all of his children were able to have a free education at Oxford, um, which I think is sort of. Again, mainstream media has not gone there, but Glenn Maxwell had the 
been the daughter of anyone else who was not a finagler, because ultimately, Robert Maxwell was someone who was always looking for the easy way out. You know, it was later discovered that he was a fraud. Um, you know, he defrauded so many people, and uh, she, they would not have had a good education. I, I stumbled upon um, a handwritten letter that I have in my possession uh, that Galen wrote, and it's just full of uh, grammatical and spelling mistakes. So to present day, I think that she still suffers from some kind of reading disability. Um, but she got a, 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 the best education, you know. It doesn't get any better than going to Oxford. Uh, in the 50s, her father was being uh, followed and investigated by the FBI back in the old Hoover days. Why were they tracking his movements? And you may have kind of tipped your hand a little bit on that early on when you described some of his personality. But but what was going on there? Well, J. Edgar Hoover, you're, you're, you're 100% right. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover um, had the suspicion that because Robert Maxwell uh, – traveled to the United States quite a lot. And from the 1950s, early 1950s, what I did was I dug into the old FBI files. He would investigate him not only in the United States. So, for example, when Robert Maxwell came into New York and he stayed at the Plaza Hotel uh, in the 1950s, J. Edgar Hoover would have two agents go and check into rooms right next to him. He wanted to know everything. The FBI reached out not only to the employees of the Plaza Hotel who would give them information as well, and they happily did because they didn't like Robert Maxwell. You know, he was not kind to the help, let's say. He suspected him of being a spy. Um, however, it, it, I strongly believe, and um, there's enough proof at this point, that Ro that Robert Maxwell was allowed to do many things. Maxwell would spend an incredible amount of time uh, behind the Iron Curtain uh, during the time that we had sort of the Cold War, and there was this big communist scare. So Hoover believed that all of these visits to the United States by Robert Maxwell had to do with spying. And frankly, he was right. In my book, I, I, I include um, a letter that was sent by George Bush while he was at Yale, that's George Herbert Walker Bush, while he was in Yale, um, saying, we believe this man, Robert Maxwell, is running off with our scientific documents for intelligence purposes. Well, he was. I mean, it, and we see parallels uh, between what Robert Maxwell was doing with scientific journals and Jeffrey Epstein with MIT, Stanford, Harvard. There are parallels there. And Hoover was convinced that he was fine. Well, hey, folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil, and I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our affiliate, Truthfinder. It's a company that I've been using for a couple of years to research cases and individuals. 
Now, Truthfinder uses publicly available information, but it brings it together in a way that provides answers quickly and concisely. You can use Truthfinder to check out your new babysitter, or maybe that new love in your life, or just to find somebody you haven't seen for an awfully long time. Truthfinder provides these comprehensive background reports, telephone reports, email reports, and even location information. So when you go in and examine the information in their search results, you're gonna find personal information, contact information, and places where your target has lived, not only historically, but currently. Now, all this can seem really overwhelming and maybe a little invasive to you. So I wanna make sure you understand all of the information is publicly available information. TrueFinder just has an algorithm that brings it all together in a way that makes it a whole lot easier to access. Now, TrueFinder is an affiliate, which means we get a tiny commission when you sign up. It's about enough to buy a Diet Dr. Pepper, frankly. But I want you to know that I use it every single day, and I hope that you'll take a moment and sign up with them. I've given you a discount code, and it's down in the link below, so make sure you grab it. Evil 10. And remember, you can cancel this thing at any time. Now, I hope you'll give them a try, but, but before you do, let's just jump back into today's discussion. And he was. Hey, yeah. Hey, folks, we're talking to Kirby Summers, one of the many uh, people who have played into this Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell uh, criminal case, not because she was involved directly with them, but because of the associations she had with those who associated with Epstein. She's a survivor of sexual assault and sustained sexual abuse. I really want to thank her for being here. I mentioned at the beginning that Kirby's an accomplished author, and I want to invite you to check out her works. Titles like The Billionaire's Woman, a memoir, and Jeffrey Epstein, Predator. You can follow Kirby on Twitter, and you can get her at the hashtag at Kirby Summers. So please make sure you're checking her out there. And since we're talking books, please consider picking up my two latest books, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult, and She Knew No Fear. You can get signed copies through profilingevil.com and Frankly, folks, they'll make great gift ideas with the rapidly approaching holidays. But let's get back to our discussion with Kirby. Again, a survivor of sustained sex trafficking, and she's turned her life from being a victim to not only becoming a well-known author, but a champion for human rights. Kirby, you know, when we look at these kinds of cases, Gillian's case in, in particular, we often explore uh, what we call victimology, the study of who the victims are. And we've looked at, at who the victims were in Ghislaine and, and Epstein's case on a number of occasions here on Profiling Evil. We call this victimology a study of the victim. Likewise, we like to look at the suspects in these cases, something we call suspectology, for lack of a better word, or the study of a suspect. As we continue to get a better understanding of Ghislaine Maxwell in her early years and now moving into her adult life and creating a relationship, how does she get to know Epstein? And what then takes this kid who was at one point in her life at least physically abused and turn her into a sexual predator? Well, that's, that's uh, again, 
one of these questions that has a lot of tentacles. I want to um, say that during my research, I discovered that Jeffrey Epstein knew the very same people that were in uh, Robert Maxwell's life, um, Ghislaine Maxwell's contacts would then become enmeshed uh, into the now infamous black book of Jeffrey Epstein, which has over a thousand names. Um, I, I know that Ari Ben Menachi, who is a former Mossad agent, has made it his mission, and I believe intentionally, because Mossad does not like its secrets to uh, steer away from them. And frankly, I believe the CIA is also involved, and I have some question marks uh, about, I'm not still sure if MI6 or MI5 are involved, but I'm, I've got some leads to, to follow on that, and that'll go into my second book on Galen. Um it's my understanding uh, that um, this is a much larger ring, a trafficking ring, than mainstream media has made out to be. So, for example, I love Julie K. Brown, who, who did such phenomenal reporting for the Herald um, in Florida. However, she only focuses on Florida. And she only focuses on uh, the teenage victims who were primarily uh, not from, let's say, they're from broken homes or they're from they're economically uh, deprived. Um, when there are more victims in other countries, uh, it was later, of course, discovered that John Luke Brunel was bringing in European uh, uh, girls, girls from the Eastern Bloc, girls who didn't speak English. In fact, uh, some of these girls that didn't speak English ended up, you know, being alleged by Virginia Dufresne to have participated with Prince Andrew. So that um, it's, it's my belief at this point that these two people, Jeffrey Epstein and Galen Maxwell, are really part of a much larger uh, thing that we've stumbled upon. Um, but I will go back and, and take you to where I believe Galen met, met Epstein, because that's who we're talking about. When um, her father, Robert Maxwell, on November the 5th, 1991, fell or was pushed off his yacht, and, you know, was theoretically the, what, what most people believe and what um, Gordon Thomas and Martin Dillon, who wrote the book Robert Maxwell, Israel Super Spy, believe, um, having spoken to Rafi Eitan and some other Mossad agents, is that he was murdered. Ghislaine accompanied her mother and her brother to um, the Canary Islands which is where um, he, he kind of, that's where his body was found. And, and um, she was going through, there, there's actually a mainstream media report about this situation. And I, and I include that in, in my book. In my book, I try to include as much reference information so that people can do their own 
uh, sort of connect their own dots. So I think it's important for people to do that um, because sometimes it's easier to learn when you're rereading some stuff that you maybe not read the whole thing and you don't know how to connect that dot. So it's, it's my understanding that Delenn Maxwell was on the yacht going through all of her father's papers and shredding them, throwing them on the floor, ordering that everything be destroyed. Whereupon, it's my belief that she stumbled upon Jeffrey Epstein's information. Now, I happen to have had the luxury and the privilege of being able to speak with Bill Hamilton. And um, Bill Hamilton told me that it is his understanding that Jeffrey Epstein met Robert Maxwell and that he boarded the Lady Belen before his death to obtain a, a copy of the compromised promise software so that he could keep tabs on sex abuse victims. Again, this makes reference to a much larger ring that existed long before Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell uh, connect. So I believe that that is how they met. They, they, when Glenn appeared uh, at the very, very pompous funeral that was held in Jerusalem, it was a funeral fit for uh, literally the, the head of state. She appeared by herself. Her siblings had their significant others, right? If you have a boyfriend, as Ari Ben Menashe is alleging, that Galen and Jeffrey Epstein had been a boyfriend, girlfriend, commencing since 1986 to the time. That is untrue. Uh, I, and then he alleges that they were running a small trafficking ring that was sanctioned by Mossad and they gave him his the blessing. I don't believe any of this. I believe that this is a an attempt to hide the fact that it is a much larger trafficking ring. Um, so the first time that they are photographed is um, two weeks after Robert Maxwell's death at the Plaza Hotel. There is uh, actually a now well-known photograph that was included in the very one of the first books that was written about Jeffrey Epstein. It was written by um, uh, James Patterson, Filthy Rich. They made the documentary of. It's a photograph of Delenn Maxwell sitting there with Jeffrey Epstein. Instead of black tie, he's wearing white tie, which is interesting because um, that's much more formal than the event called for. To uh, Delenn Maxwell's left is Tony Randall, who most people do not are, are unaware that Tony Randall was pretty much the the host for for the event for the evil event that the plaza had been scheduled before his death. After his death, they reached out to his uh, widow, Betty Maxwell, and they said, we'd still like to honor his life. And she was, yes, uh, you know, until two weeks, literally two weeks after his death, they fly into New York and Jeffrey Epstein is just sitting next to, that's the very first time we see them together. Um, then there is a another mainstream media. So that is the end of November. 
There's another mainstream media article dated January of, of 1992, so about a month later, where they see Glenn Maxwell boarding the Concord, and with her is this grayish, plumpish, uh, older man. And, and uh, at the end of the article, they say, oh, his name is Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I then was able to track down a photograph taken in, um, I believe it was Milan, in February. So right at the same time that she came to New York, they then took a flight. They went to, no, they went to Paris. It was not Milan. Uh, uh, sorry about that. I found a photograph of them sitting at a, a fashion show in Paris. February 1992. So, and on the stage is Naomi Campbell, uh, Karen Mulder, all of these models that are connected to Leslie Wexner's Victoria's Secret. And sort of that is where I end my book, Dylan Maxwell, an unauthorized biography, just to show that the tentacle, again, to, to rehash what I'm saying, is that this trafficking ring was much broader. I just want to add one more thing, if I may, Mike. Um, people are of the belief that they only uh, approach young girls. That is not true. They approached, and young girls who were economically disadvantaged, that is untrue. So, for example, there is a mainstream media report of Galen Maxwell walking into a party, and she spots Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton is one of the wealthiest women in the world, and at the time, one of the wealthiest young women in the world. And, and she's very excited, and she, you know, she went, this is a very high-end party, so it's not as if there could be someone that's financially strapped who's going to be there in these wonderful dresses. And she turns around to her companion and she says, I want her uh, for Epstein. And, and so they didn't just, my point is, is that they reached out to everyone from every socioeconomic background, in addition to boys. Um, and I don't know if even you heard that. Had, had you heard that there were boys and, and other types of victims involved? Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because we often see as these perversions intensify that uh, what is preferential sometimes isn't quite enough and they have to then start experiencing uh, with others, which is just so terrible when you think about the the massive amount of victimization that goes on. Well, you know, um, the, Kirby, this case just keeps growing in complexity and intrigue. And so this is I, the question I really am interested in your thoughts on. You know, not only is Glenn Maxwell facing this jury of her peers now, Prince Andrews is facing a civil lawsuit as well. Jeffrey Epstein escaped further scrutiny, whether alive or dead, and that's all a discussion for a different day. And conspiracy theorists would say he's not, and others would would say absolutely he is. But but is this uh, event with Ghislaine and, and Prince Andrews and the criminal case and civil case going to bring closure to the Epstein saga? 
That's a very good question. Um, the case against Ghislaine Maxwell is really surrounds only four victims and only for a very limited time. So all of the victims, and, and, and what we have to realize is there were thousands of victims and only about 30 have stepped forward and only really about one or two or three have made any statements, even on social media. The one who is the most outspoken, as we all know, is Virginia Dufre, who has the action, the civil action against Prince Andrew currently. Now, she is not a part of this case. Uh, these are four other victims. Um, I think that a win for one is a win for all, because as you so aptly reminded everyone, Jeffrey Epstein is gone, right? So there's a lot that can't happen because he's gone. One of Galen's comment uh, through her attorney is that they're coming after her because they don't have Jeffrey Epstein. And, and, and what, what of interest is, I think to a lot of people, why is she, why was she arrested now? Right. And, and, and so my belief is, um, well, I mean, I think we know, let's say, through Michael Wolf's book, he wrote a book, and in that book, he, he, he has sort of one chapter on Donald Trump and on Jeffrey Epstein and certain things that happened. And so Jeffrey Epstein had the belief that Donald Trump would probably arrest him to sort of um, hold back information that would have jeopardized his ability to become president. Um, while Donald Trump was in office, he also told um, sort of, he, 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 he told some people that he would have and was thinking about offering Glenn a preemptive uh, pardon, which he almost did, which is, is surprising that he did not. Um, I don't, from my perspective, uh, you know, people are unaware that in Joe Biden's uh, pick for Secretary of State, Antony Blinken is a childhood friend of Ghislaine Maxwell um, through her father. Her father's uh, close friend and confidant is a man by the name of Samuel Passar, who he had known since the 1950s and who, in fact, was, uh, although he is French-born, uh, he became a uh, sort of an advisor to John F. Kennedy in the 1960s when he was president. Um, the Passar family uh, is connected to Ghislaine. So she has friends still in the White House uh, who, you know, I, I, I can't help but to be um, suspicious that a lot of what's happening now is just... Um, Sort of, you know, a magic trick, <laughs> sort of like a, a play of, with mirrors and some kind of subterfuge. It just seems like, I don't know, it almost seems like they're doing it to perhaps appease the public. This has become, because of social media, a big deal, as you know. Um, 
we're going to have closure soon because it begins on November the 29th. It's supposed to end on the 6th of January. Will it bring closure? It'll be great if Galen can be sent to jail for, you know, 40 years. That would be great for everyone, yes. Well, and and I guess the question is, would it satisfy the many victims who remain that will never get justice because of Epstein's death? And that's part and parcel of what we'll watch as this thing unfolds. But I cannot thank you enough, Kirby, for taking time to share your insight into this really interesting case, uh, one that is filled with a lot of sadness and hopefully at the end of the day, um, lessons learned and some vindication for the victims. Well, it's, it's been really an honor to be here. I watched you and I listened to you and I was like, gee, you know, he's, he's, on to this Epstein story. So he's someone I would love to talk with. So thank you for having me. Well, thanks for listening to Profiling Evil Podcasts. Please check out our YouTube channel at Profiling Evil and make sure that you subscribe to these audio podcasts and, of course, our YouTube videos. I hope that you'll consider purchasing any of my books, but two of my favorites, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. Deceived is about a ritual cult that I took down where we rescued children who were repeatedly assaulted for years. My other favorite book is She Knew No Fear, and it's the story of Jane Walton, a pioneer woman who was murdered in 1891. It's the story of my investigation into her life and untimely death, and most importantly, it's how I solved her murder. You know, it took 130 years to get Jane Justice. You can find these books in hardbound, signed copies at ProfilingEvil.com, or you can get them through Amazon in paperback. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon at the next crime scene. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.